Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your mother and father. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're continuing our study on the book of Ephesians. And today we come to this passage, and uh, we've been working through a series of passages where Paul is giving um, specific instruction to groups of people. We just did two weeks talking about husbands and wives, and this week he's talking to parents. Next week he's talking to employers and employees. Um, and as we talk about this week, we're talking about children and parents. Is a short passage. It's a passage that's applied specifically toward fathers, where he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. And he doesn't actually say anything about mothers in here. It's a, it's a unique thing. It's an interesting thing. I think that there's a lot of things that we can learn about parenting in general from what he has to say in this passage, but he does apply it specifically to fathers. And I just find the timing of this to be um, providential from God. And uh, I'm going to try to get through this part without crying. Uh, I'll try my best here. Um, it's, it's providential from the Lord because exactly one year ago today, my father died. And so teaching on what it means to be a father um, with this gaping hole of not only what wasn't, because my father wasn't around when I was a child, my father left when I was five, um, but also what never will be, I think is the difficult thing. And uh, when, when he died, that was the most challenging thing for me to process because I'd always held out hope that one day, my father would work his way back into my life, as his father did. My, my father's father, my grandfather, um, left my father when he was young. And then after my father became an adult, um, my, my dad kind of wandered the country, working at different national parks uh, in the service industry. And uh, his father just kind of showed up at every bar he was bartending in and would just be like, hey, what's up, son? And so I always held out hope. And, and so with my father's death, uh, my, my hopes died of having any type of meaningful relationship with my dad. I, after um, they split when, my, uh, when I was five, I saw him semi-regularly every couple years until I was turned 16 um, when I decided to go into full-time ministry. I, d I decided to be a pastor when I was 16 years old. My father did not approve of that. Um, and I only talked to him three times after that decision. And all three times I called him. All three times uh, the phone call was shorter than what my heart longed for. Um, and I think a lot of us are walking around with similar kind of wounds. Uh, we all walk around with issues from our parents, and particularly issues with our fathers. And I think there's a reason for that. I think that the relationship between father and child, the relationship between parent and child in general, just touches on this thing that's sacred. Because one of the greatest analogies that we have for our relationship with God is Him as Father. Our God is our Father. He cares for us. He shows us what it's meant to be a father. And none of our earthly fathers can match that. And so the, the wounds that our fathers leave us, the wounds that our parents leave us in, oftentimes speak very loudly because they really are a pale comparison when we compare them to a perfect God, a loving God. My father, I, I try to show him grace. He 
had a difficult life. He was a Vietnam veteran. Uh, he was in the Marines. Uh, he, he didn't want to get drafted, so he went and joined the, the Marines. Uh, he saw terrible things in war in Vietnam. He came back. His mother had sold all of his things um, and kept all of his, all of his brother's things. Um, at least that's the story that's been passed down to me. And so from that day forward, he didn't speak to his mother and didn't speak uh, to a lot of his family for a long time. And I, I try to say that because while I had a difficult relationship with my father, and, and I wouldn't even say difficult, I would just say non-existent um, relationship with my father, I want to show him grace because we're all the product of what we've received, right? And my father lived a really hard life. And so for that, I give him grace. If you look at the statistics, I should not be where I am. It's only by the grace of the Lord. Here are some statistics on children without fathers from fatherhood.org. Uh, children without fathers are four times more likely to live in poverty. They are more likely to suffer emotional and behavioral problems. They have higher levels of aggressive behavior than children born in married homes. They have two times the risk of infant mortality. Four out of five prison inmates grew up without a father present, which just perpetuates the problem for their own children, as many of those are fathers themselves. Fatherlessness might be one of the biggest problems facing the well-being of our nation, when you think about it in these terms. And it's by the grace of the Lord, I, I tell people all the time, I should not be where I am. It's not because I'm great, but God really has been good to me. And he's given me grace upon grace. And this truth is terrifying for me. For better or worse, the human relationship that most has an impact on your life and who you are is your relationship with your parents. Who, who you are, in many ways, for better or worse, is the culmination of their successes and their failures, is the culmination of who they are and their personality and their individual quirks. No matter how good of a, so it's terrifying in that way, but it's also terrifying in the other direction because now I'm a father of three. And no matter how good of a parent I am, no matter how good of a father I am, I know that my kids are gonna be in counseling one day because of my issues. And I hope that they can show me grace. And I hope I can be humble to own up to those issues. And I hope that they might meet the father that they're longing for, who is our heavenly father. Because I'll never meet those standards. But God is gracious. You see, it's not just those who, without an earthly father who have a problem. It's everyone who doesn't know that perfect father. We need our relationship with our heavenly father to be right so that we can flourish. How am I, as a broken man, carrying the wounds of a fatherless childhood, supposed to be a successful father and to teach you all how to be a father? And I stand before you today, not as someone who had a perfect father, nor as someone who is a perfect father, but who is someone who is loved by a perfect father. And I'm not someone who has his act all together, but I'm setting my eyes on the one who makes all things new. Several weeks ago, back in, I don't know, 
the fall at some point. We're going through Ephesians 3, and I love this prayer that Paul prays, and I, I just want to pray it for us now as we continue on talking about this, because what he does is he prays that we might know the love of the Father. And I think without that knowledge, not only head knowledge, but this heart knowledge, that we might come to understand it better. We will never be able to do what he tells us in Ephesians 6 without that prayer, without that knowledge from Ephesians 3. So let's go back. Ephesians 3, verses 14. If you have your Bible, you can look there. But this is what he says. He says, for this reason, and, and just let's just pray with Paul uh, on this now. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That means that we're all kind of made in his image here. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you, church, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. You see, it goes past our brains and it surpasses that and into our hearts, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And for the rest of this book, Paul describes what it means to be filled with all the fullness of God. You see, in chapter 5, just a chapter later, he says, therefore, be imitators of God. Well, how do you, are you to be imitators of God, but to be filled with the fullness of God? As you're filled with the fullness of God, you become an imitator of God. And as you're an imitator of God, you become a representative of God, an ambassador of sorts, where you represent who God is to this world. And so now he's going through all these dis different relationships where we represent who God is. We just talk about husband and wife. We represent who God is in our relationship with our spouse. But we also represent who God is in our relationship to our children and to our parents. We represent God. Because if you think about even the most, the most sacred relationship that there is in the, in the universe, which is the relationship of God the Father to his son, Jesus Christ. How do you describe the most sacred relationship there could possibly be other than father and son? You see, as you are a child, you are representing what it means to have that relationship. And as you are a parent, you are representing what it means to have that relationship. And that's what Paul tells us that we are called to do, church. The best way to be a faithful child or a faithful parent is simply to experience the love of God and to imitate the way that he loves, reflecting the love of God to everyone. And so as we dive into this passage, I have a very complicated outline today. It's very creative also. I think you're going to be impressed. It's, it really goes like this. Application to children. Application to parents. Application to children. Application to parents. Real creative this week. First, application to children. Let's look at the, the passage again. Ephesians, 1, uh, Ephesians 6, chapter 1. Children, obey your parents, and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. So here he starts, the first word here is children. And it is true that in a sense, every person here is a child. We all have parents of some sort. We were not made uh, and raised in a lab that hasn't been invented yet, yet some ethical issues coming for us one of these days. But 
We all are children in one way or another. But that's not how he's using the word here. The word here in the original Greek is techna, and that word is like little children. So when he says children, who is he referring to? Not to all of us, but to kids. He's saying, hey kids, listen up. Which I find to be really interesting for us. Because here we are, we're not at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, where it's like the kids are still paying attention, all right? We're in Ephesians chapter 6. Paul's like, you kids, you've been listening this whole time. Now I'm going to start talking to you. So you see, Paul assumes that kids are listening to the sermons. Paul assumes that kids are listening all the way into the, the middle or the end, that they can pay attention. And I think that's something interesting and, and important for us as we think about that. Right, kids? Yeah, that's right. Where are my kids at? We got some kids in here. My kids are at home. My, my son is sick today. We got a few kids in here, though. And let me just tell you guys, the Bible says that kids, children, are supposed to obey their parents. And that's really important for you guys to remember that. And here's why. It's really important because if the Bible says it, that means God means it. And so when you obey your parents, you are obeying God. Isn't that kind of amazing? That when you obey your parents, you are obeying God. But you know what else that means? It means when you are disobeying your parents, you're disobeying God. You're not doing what God told you to do. But it's hard to be a kid. It's hard to hear. It's hard to listen. It's hard to obey sometimes. And so what do we do when we don't obey? Well, the Bible tells us two things. The Bible says that we remember and we repent, kids. And so remember, we remember that only Jesus obeyed all the time and that we and then we repent, meaning that sometimes we have to go and ask for forgiveness for not obeying. So we might say, Mom, I'm sorry I wasn't listening. I'm sorry I didn't obey. Will you forgive me? But then we don't leave it at that. We go to God and we say, by not listening to my mom, I wasn't listening to you. Will you forgive me, God? And that's what it looks like for us as we're kids. But there's good news, kids, in some ways. And that's this, that one day when you become a grown-up, you don't have to obey your parents forever. <laughs> it's one of those things where the Bible tells you that you honor your parents, but when you're a kid, you have to obey them. And then when you get old, you still have to honor them, but it doesn't look quite the same. And so everyone, as we think about this, I want to explain to you what I mean by it. I want you to look at Ephesians, at Ephesians 6, verse 1 again. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then verse 2, honor your father and mother. So what he's doing here is he's quoting one of the Ten Commandments. One of the Ten Commandments says, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, this promise is not a promise that we might think about it in that way, where it's like, if I do, it's not an if-then statement. If you obey your parents, then you'll necessarily live long and, li and, uh, and it'll go well with you in the land. It's more like, in general, by obeying your parents, that is the way to flourish, by honoring your parents, that is the way to flourish. But I want you to pick up on this one thing that's very important here. In verse 1, it says, children, obey. In verse 2, it says, honor your parents. Verse 1 is the implication, it's the interpretation for a child of how they live out the principle from verse 2. Verse 2 is the principle that we all live by. We all are called to honor our parents. But children honor their parents by obeying them. Now, that's hard for some of us who've had challenging relationships with our parents. 
as many of us, in fact, all of us do in some ways. It's hard for us to honor our parents. And even some of you might be objecting to what I'm saying, that honoring is not always obeying. But I really don't think it is, because when you become an adult, one of the goals of parenthood is that you bring your children up. And this passage that we learned two weeks ago where we said that a husband and a wife, they leave and cleave. They form their own family. And that means that the parental authority then is broken. No longer is an authority there, but now you still have this honoring kind of relationship with your parents. And for those of us who didn't have great parents that are easy to honor, that relationship's a complicated thing. But I like the way that uh, Pastor Tim Keller puts this. He says, it doesn't say that we have to admire our parents. It also doesn't say that we have to trust our parents. Those would be foolish things to do for some of us. But it says that we have to honor our parents. Now, as usual, Paul is very good at giving us principles and not telling us how to do it. It's frustrating at times because it's like, I just want you to tell me what to do, Paul. All right? But he just gives us this principle saying, honor your parents. And which is just a quote from the Old Testament. So how do we do this? How do we honor our parents? And I think that that's a difficult thing. There aren't specifics, and I think it looks different for every person. But here are a few ideas, my personal ideas, from someone who has a challenging relationship with at least one of his parents. We remember that our parents are flawed humans. That they're the product of flawed humans themselves. And they have their own wounds that they were carrying as they were trying to parent you. We also remember that as equipped as you feel for parenting is as equipped as they felt for parenting. No one feels ready for this thing, all right? Here's the thing with parenting. You're never ready. And when you do become a parent, you're making it up on the, you, you got to make it up on the fly, baby. You got to go, all right? It's just like you fake it until you make it. And then you make it and you're like, I guess we tried our best. And that's really what parenting is oftentimes. There's ways to grow. There's ways to, to move on. And I wish that you could raise the first child like the third. But the reality is you just can't. You can't. Because all of that experience that you have. And then your third child's going to be so different that it's just going to be a totally different thing. We recognize that our parents are flawed humans. Another way that you can honor your parents is that you, you remember what they did right. My father did not do much right. But I will tell you that I have no negative memories of the, any time I spent with my father. Every time I was with my father, I enjoyed myself. I remember him being loving. And the problem with my father is that he was just absent. But there are things that almost all of our parents get right. And you have to try to think of those things. That's not true for everyone. But for the majority of us, that will be a way to honor them. And lastly, we work toward forgiving them for what they got wrong. And that's a way to honor them. It's by forgiving them, to recognize that they are an image bearer of God and that you can forgive them. And it's very difficult. Richard Rohr, the, the Catholic priest, once said this. He said, if we do not transform our pain, we will assuredly transmit it. If we do not transform our pain, we will assuredly transmit it. I don't know where that could be more possibly true than with parenting. 
Friends, your success as a parent, as a future parent, wherever you might be, or as a human in many ways, your success as a human is dependent upon how much you can process your relationship with your parents. I know that that's big, and I'm not trying to say that you can't be a successful human without that. I'm not trying to say that you're an unhealthy person always if you don't do that, but I'm trying to say that for you to be the healthiest version of you, you have to process and forgive and work through your relationship with your parents. Some of us have pretty big wounds that we're carrying around, and it's going to take a lot of courage for us as we step into those wounds. It's going to take a lot of friends for us as we step into those wounds. It might take a lot of therapy for some of us to step into those wounds, but I'm telling you that you need to. Don't just ignore it. It's easy to ignore and move on, and sometimes you you got to do that a little bit. You got to balance it, you know. But you have to move forward and know that God can be your guide and that you're in a community full of people that are broken <laughs> and with messed up relationships. And so we come alongside each other and we carry one another through it. There's nothing more courageous than someone that can just kind of share with another human being their own wounds and weaknesses. And also, because it's like holding up a mirror, because of, as I explained to you my father's weaknesses, I'm also explaining to you my own weaknesses, my temptations to check out mentally, to just have everyone leave me alone for a little bit. You know, my father's father, my grandfather, it's a classic tale. <laughs> he said, hey, I'm going out to get some cigarettes, and he never came back. You hear about that in the movies? It actually happened to my grandfather, with my grandfather. Let's process those things and not be held hostage by them. All right, application of parents. Verse 4 says this. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In this verse, Paul gives us the very goal of parenting. The very goal of parenting is this, to bring up your children. The goal of parenting is to bring up your children. What does that mean? It means that you want your children to grow up. It means that you want your children to become independent. You want them to move out. If we've got any 20-year-olds in here, you need to hear that. You want them to leave and cleave. You want them to start a new family. The goal of parenting is to release your children. The goal of parenting is for your children to become your peer. Some parents of adult age children might need to hear that today. The goal of parenting is for your children to become your peer. That's the dream. And just make that the dream in your mind. I want my kid to be my friend once they become an adult. And so everything I do today has to point to the fact that I want this kid to be my friend one day. Which means that I need to set an example because I need to be the type of person that they can imitate that I'll want to be friends with one day. Because isn't it true when we get home, the worst version of ourself comes out? I wouldn't want to be friends with me sometimes if I, if I had to hang out with someone that was as, as I am. I don't even have a, a description there, but just as this, as I am. You want your child to become your peer. 
Now, if you want to do that, how are you going to do it? Well, first, you need to understand that this is a progressive process. It's not something that you just decide one day uh, that, like, you, you have this four-year-old, and then one day the four-year-old keeps aging, and then they turn 16, and it's like, all of a sudden, I want to have a relationship with you. Well, no, it doesn't quite work that way. Or all of a sudden, you're not under my authority. I'm just friends with you. I think that a chart is helpful. I've got one chart. I never use slides. Uh, it's a helpful chart, though. And this comes from a book by Ted Tripp called Shepherding a Child's Heart. And what you'll see in this chart is that when a kid is born, your authority level over the kid is really high. You have all authority, no influence. You're just telling that kid what to do and then just letting the kid uh, do what you tell them to do. But as the kid gets older, your authority has to go down and your influence has to rise to where when you one day, when the child is an adult, you realize that you have no authority over this child anymore. They're no longer commanded to obey you, but instead you have a ton of influence. But if it's not gradual like that, if the changes aren't gradual, you're not going to have the influence that you so desire. You're not going to have authority or influence if you don't start trying to let go of the authority earlier. And you know what was really scary for me is what I realized was halfway between 0 and 18, but 9. And I've got a daughter that's about to turn 9. So I need to be influencing her equal amounts to what I'm authority over her at this moment. That's a wake-up call. Because it's so easy to just tell children what to do. And you have to realize that you have to be showing that influence to them the whole time. You have to be progressively letting go of your children as they grow older. If you want your children to make wise decisions, you can't make all their decisions for them. You have to teach them how to make wise decisions. I'm done with the chart now. You have to teach them how to make wise decisions, which means that you have to let them make some bad decisions so that they can learn from their bad choices. You start loosening your grip. What happens if you fail to bring up your children? What happens if you fail to bring up your children? The text actually tells us. Verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up. So if you fail to bring them up, what do you do? You provoke them to anger. Do you want your kids to be angry with you? Here's a surefire way. You try to control them or you neglect them. You refuse to bring them up. You refuse to take an influence in, your, in their life, so you neglect them. And you refuse to let go of authority in their life, so you control them. And that's a way to make your kids angry with you as they get older. If you want a kid who's angry, just try being distant or controlling. There's a temptation for us as we think about these things to those of us who have young kids or you want to have young kids, you, you can just listen in. Or if you're in community with people who have young kids, Important for you to know this as well, so you can be praying for your friends. But it says this, there's a temptation, but I have this to say, sorry, the Bible doesn't say this, but there's a temptation to say, to say that when a kid is young, I'm going to ignore them. <laughs> Trust me, it's easy to want to ignore a four-year-old who's acting foolishly. Young children require a lot, a lot of work. It's exhausting work. They keep you up all night long takes a special person to enjoy playing with a three-year-old all day. It does. Special person. But if you want your child to become your peer, you can't just ignore the little years and expect to have a relationship with them as they get older. You have to start building a relationship with your kids from a very young age. If you want to have a 17-year-old who will tell you about that boy from school, you have to invest 
in a relationship with the seven-year-old so that they trust you, so that they'll talk to you about things. And really, guys, this isn't complicated. All it requires is time and attention. You give them your time, you give them your attention. You can't expect your kids to just leave you alone. Uh, That's oftentimes my temptation, like, kids, just leave me alone, especially if I'm struggling with something or going through a hard time. Leave me alone. (laughs) But you can't expect kids to leave you alone. You don't want them to. You can't expect kids to leave you alone, and then you have a relationship with them when they get older for them to become your peer. You can't expect to work 14-hour days neglecting your relationship with them and then call them up here one day. You can't expect to play Xbox all evening, neglecting your relationship with them, and then, and then call them up here one day. No, that's not how you bring them up. Likewise, if you want a child to become your peer, you can't be overly controlling. And I think some of us are thinking about our own parents and all of this too, and thinking about our own temptations, and, and know that these things are going to happen when you have kids. It's, it's hard. Both of these are temptations that we fall into. But some parents don't raise their kids in the Lord but as the Lord, right? They're not saying God wants you to do this. It's like, I, thus saith the dad, listen to me. It's so easy to parent your children in a way that you see your kids as an extension of yourself. Having children, it's, I've heard someone say this, having children is like having your heart on the outside of your body. Their successes become your successes. Their failures become your failures. If we're not careful, what actually can happen is that our children can become our idols. They can become the things that tell us that our life is okay, that our life is is good and has meaning and has purpose. If my children are happy, then I am happy. If my children are sad, then I am sad. But do you see that their functional God and their functional Savior has become their children? But it is so easy for that to happen. And what ends up happening, when your functional God becomes your children, you end up trying to control them. And when you hug so tight, you end up smothering them. And it's a natural tendency for almost all of them. Our expectations for our kids can become a suffocating method of controlling them. This is why it's important for us as parents to put our identity in Christ so that we don't look for our identity in children. So how do we bring our children up? It says this, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Discipline and instruction, that's how we bring them up. If you want to have kids who will one day become your peers, you have to give them a home full of discipline and instruction. Let's talk about discipline first. Discipline's not one of those words that we like to hear, but the scripture, every time it talks about discipline, it talks about it in a positive sense. And In Hebrews 12, it tells us about the discipline from the Lord. It says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so discipline is good for us. And in fact, if you want to have a kid who's angry with you, don't discipline them. That's what this says. That your children need your discipline, that they actually want your discipline. They're constantly testing the levels. They're constantly testing the lines, and you will eventually bring them discipline. So set the line where you want it to be. Pastor Scott Sauls defines discipline like this, the controlled, purposeful use of discomfort in order to expel the entitlement 
and the selfishness that is naturally there and to cooperate with the Holy Spirit to contribute to their character. Such a good definition. Let me read that one more time. The controlled, purposeful use of discomfort in order to expel the entitlement and the selfishness that is naturally there and to cooperate with the Holy Spirit to contribute to their character. Oftentimes we want to avoid our child's unhappiness at all costs, so we'll give them anything to make them happy. But we know that discipline as a controlled measure might make them unhappy for the moment, but it will eventually make them not mad at you. It will help them to be brought up in the Lord. Now, I have a question for you parents or those of you who are preparing to be parents one day. How is your discipline any different than a neighbor who doesn't know Jesus, a non-religious neighbor might be? How, can, how is your discipline any, any different? Because I have lots of neighbors and friends who are great parents. They're great parents. And how is my parenting any different? How is my discipline any different? And here's something that I've come to realize is that discipline for a Christian is not about behavior modification, but about shepherding a heart that is set on going its own way apart from God. Discipline for a believer is not about behavior modification. The behavior just reflects the heart that's set on going away apart from God. And so my goal is not just to change the behavior, but to figure out why my kid is acting in that way. The question of why, why did you do this? Kids oftentimes cannot answer that question. And you have to dig deeper and try to find out what it is, what insecurities they have, and how you can point them to the Lord to satisfy those desires. And lastly, about discipline, I think this is really important. Discipline is not for the parent, but for the child. Sometimes when your kid misbehaves, you get so angry. <laughs> it makes me so angry when they just won't do what I tell them to do, because I know it's for their good and it's their foolishness why they won't listen to me. But I don't just discipline kids because I'm angry. That will lead to abusive tendencies. I discipline my kids for their good and not for my own. I know that the classic thing is like, this is going to hurt you a lot more than it hurts me, or this is going to hurt me a lot more than it hurts you, right, is what they say. But that really does need to be true in our discipline, that it's going to hurt us more than it hurts them because it's for their good and not our own. Second way we bring our kids up is through the instruction of the Lord. What is the instruction of the Lord? The instruction of the Lord is what we're getting right now. So opening the Bible and reading it. We have to read the Bible with our kids. Now you read kids' Bibles to kids, and you had to work your way up. I can give you a whole list of recommendations as you work your way through kids' Bibles. The way that my family does this, just very practically, probably three or four times a week. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lie to you and say it's every day of the week, but three or four times a week when, every, when the stars line up just right and the kids all wake up at the right time, because I never wake up a sleeping child. That's just a Fletcher rules for life. If they're sleeping, they're sleeping. I'm not waking them up. Um, my kids also wake up really early, so fair enough. Um, but we open up a Bible, we read it, I ask them a couple questions about what we read. It takes five minutes, you know, not very long, not, not very intense. But they're getting a, a regular digest of the Bible. And then what, one thing that we do sometimes is we'll open up the New City Catechism, which is an app that you can download for free. The New City Catechism has lots of great questions and answers for them. My kids love this stuff. And so... 
uh, New City Catechism is a great way to do that as well. And you know what else? Koa Kids. It contributes so much to this. And I just want to thank you guys for serving with Koa Kids. You guys so helpful to me. When I open up the Bible and I read a story that my kids have heard in Koa Kids, before I even get past the second paragraph, they're like, I know the story. We learned it in Koa Kids. And I'm like, I've read the story 17 times to you, but you remember it the one time that you learned it in Koa Kids. It's so important what you're doing. It really contributes that because no one is supposed to raise a kid in isolation. You know, when Jesus was young, his parents left him at the temple in an accident. It's like home alone Bible edition, all right? They're going on a trip, and then they get like a days away, and they look around, they're like, where's Jesus? And it's like, you have the Messiah. You, don't, you lost the Messiah? How could you? You lost Jesus? And he was just back at the temple, like, listening. But how did that happen? Well, they had a community that they were traveling with. And it's like, I thought he was with you. No, I thought he was with you. And that's what we have here, church. A community that we travel with that we trust one another with. If you serve with Koa Kids, I would love to just honor you. If you can give me, if you can stand up, give me a hand, something like that, let's just honor you. Thank you. All right, yeah, give it up. Anyone serve with Koa Kids? There's a few hands. Oh, thank you, stand up. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And we're always looking for more kids volunteers as we do that, yeah. All that is great, but the best instruction you can offer, and as you get farther down this chart, is this your own example. That's the instruction of the Lord, your own example. How do you pursue God? What's the aroma of your home? Do you have a gospel culture in your home? This has to be clear that, that your kids know that you don't think that you are perfect and that you don't think that you love them perfectly, but God does. That has to be clear. This is the absolute most important part about being a parent and best advice I can give you. And I think it's an implication of what we're learning in this text is this, that the most important thing for you as a parent is to learn three very difficult words to say, I am sorry. For you to humbly admit your mistakes, I should not have done that. Even when you're doing something that you think is for their good, I should not have done it that way. For you to be honest and confess those things to your kids and seek their forgiveness. Will you forgive me? So hard. But you know what that does? It sets an example of what it looks like to not be God, but to worship God and to have a gospel culture in your home. We point kids to the love of Christ, which surpasses our own love for them. The best way you can influence your kids to become your peers is for you to be the type of person you'd want to be peers with. Now, I don't think that I ever can communicate my love toward my kids sufficiently. In fact, some of the ways that I want to communicate is not the way. The ways that my kids feel most loved is when I'll wrestle with them until they're done, not until I'm done, which whew, haven't gotten to it yet. Um, my love is like through the roof. I, I love my kids. And this idea of I'll never love them as much as God will is a very important thing for me to keep in mind. I love how Dane Ortland says it in his book Deeper. He says this, we tend to think 
we're in danger of overstating God's love for us as we receive it as his children. We hold back, not wanting to be too bold, careful to be sure we don't overdo it. But what if my kids acted like that toward me, holding my love at arm's length? It would break my, it would break my heart. So this is what he says. He says, don't break your father's heart. Lap it up, drink it up. Let the holy fire of his love burn hot in your soul. That is his deep, that is his own deep desire. Do you realize how God treats his children who mistreat his love? He loves them, all the fiercer. It is who he is. He is love, a fountain of affection. That's our goal as parents, to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Not to be perfectly well-behaved kids all the time, but to bring them up to know the love of Christ that surpasses all understanding. To understand that they are a sinner just as I am a sinner. And to help them to trust in Christ. I want to end today by um, praying for the parents and praying for all of us as children. Because we got some stuff to work through today, huh? We got some issues to talk about with our spouses or with our friends. We've got some things to journal about. We've got some kids to apologize to. We've got some parents to apologize to. The task is hard, guys, but this is health. And because of what God has done for us, we're able to step into it. So let's pray as we come to the table um, and we're reminded of what Christ has done, that, he, that God sent his own son for us, that his love for us is matched in his own love for his son. And he sent his own son for us to be crushed for our iniquities. If I love my children so much, I can only imagine God's love for his child that we are found one united with because of what he's done for us. And so as we take this meal, we're we're reminded that God loves us so much that he would send his own son to die for us. So that we don't receive what we deserve, but he received it. And we receive what he deserved, which is life everlasting. So if you're a believer here today, take this meal and be reminded of who God the Father is. And it's over-surpassing love. Fathers, we come to your table. We ask that um, you will remind us of your deep love for us, that we can understand it, and that we'll not be jaded, and that you help us to process through uh, all of these issues, our parents and our uh, children, and that you help us to walk through this with the power that you give us. God, help us to have a gospel culture in our homes. Help us to be the type of people that we'd want to be friends with one day so that our kids might imitate our behavior and so that we might call them peers as we bring them up in the Lord. Give us courage to have discipline where we need to. Give us discipline to have the instruction where we need to. God, I thank you for your word, and we pray that we'll receive this meal with a clean heart because of what Christ has done. Amen.